Brooks now for uh, quite a few weeks, so that was kind of my attempt at um, bringing everyone up to speed. I know not everybody can make it each and every week, and so that was kind of just to highlight some of the things that um, we've been going over and some of the things that have happened throughout the book of Acts, just so you can kind of keep pace with us today. Um, Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 9. If you guys want to take a second and um, turn to Acts chapter 9, we'll be reading here in a moment. We'll be reading verses 1 through 22. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 22. 9. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 22. I want to start out for a minute talking about a couple of things. I want to talk about intentions and sincerity. Um, I think a lot of times we focus so much on whether someone uh, has good intentions or whether they're sincere at what they're doing that we allow the focus on those two things to kind of cloud our judgment. Is what they're doing right? Is what they're doing true? Um, or are we just focused on their intentions or their sincerity? Um, one of the examples I kind of want to point out is when I first met Maria and I realized that things were um, getting kind of serious between us and um, I knew I wanted to spend my life with her, like immediately right then I wanted to have a baby with her, <laughs> like right out the gate. And so like if you ask me like what was I sincere in that feeling, Yes, I was. I was sincere in that. Um, did I have good intentions? Yes, I wanted to grow a family. I wanted to create this um, even greater family bond than we already had. Now, if you ask me, chapter 9, Acts chapter 9. We're going to do 1 through 22. You're welcome, buddy. Um, so at that point, I was like, okay, yes, I'm sincere. Um, I have good intentions. But now if you ask me a follow-up question now, if you ask me, um, did that make it right, I would have to change my answer. I'd have to change my answer to no. Even though I was sincere and I had good intentions, what I was doing at that time wasn't right for a couple of reasons. One, um, we weren't even married yet. So, so the, that factor is I was living in sin at that point, you know. And two, like at that point in my life with the past that I've had and the things that I've been through, like, I knew absolutely zero about being a father. And I know that nobody's ever fully ready or has this um, prerequisite training to, to being a parent, but I think with, with the, past, uh, the path that I had traveled and the things that I had went through, um, I think God had a different plan. He's like, look, pump the brakes, little buddy. I'm going to let you father this beautiful little girl for two to three years that she already has. I'm going to let you experience that. I'm going to let you grow and in in experience these things that you've never experienced before. And um, I was glad he intervened. I was glad that he had a different plan because um, it just makes it all, all the sweeter now. Now that I know the truth that he agreed that I am ready, now that I know the truth that um, I was living in sin, and we handled things and was able to, to change and go through some proper channels. And so we're going to hear a story today about somebody else. Somebody else that if you asked him if he had good intentions, um, he would probably say yes. Today, we're going to take a look at the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Um, join me as we pray first. Father, we settle our hearts before you. This prayer is not 
It's not a formality. It's an intentional way of inviting you in to each and every one of our lives. We pray that your Holy Spirit will have something special for each and every one of us. That your Holy Spirit will open our hearts and our minds to these verses that we're probably most familiar with. But your Holy Spirit will make these words rain down like, like fresh manna. And that we can feast on the bread of life. That we can become full on the bread of life. Father, I pray that the, the words that fill these verses today will, will bring us closer to you and make us better representative of you. It's in your son's precious and holy name that I pray. Amen. So, chapter 9, verses 1 through 22. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless and hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Saul arose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, here I am. Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And as he is seen in a vision, a man named Ananias came in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered the Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and he entered the house. Laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. Saul proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues for some days and was with, this, uh, with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus. <laughs> I knew that part was like twice. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And, as, and has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. That's God's word. Um, some years ago, I read about a man named Frank Morrison. He was a lawyer and... Um, when 
asked about Christianity, he said, in order to overturn Christianity, in order to diffuse the myth of Christianity, he had to attack two instances. He had to attack two situations that were in the Bible in order to overturn his Christianity. And that was his aim. One was the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and two, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. So as he went on and he started doing his research and gathering facts and looking at uh, these, two, uh, these two biblical um, situations, he gathered his information, and the more and more that he investigated this, and the more and more he looked into this to try and diffuse the myth of Christianity, the more that the evidence overwhelmed him. The more that the evidence proved that, in fact, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was true, as was the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. And in his research and in his mission to diffuse Christianity, Frank Morrison, the atheistic lawyer, was saved and gave his life to Christ. And this is a similar story that we're going to look at today. Some testimonies we hear are... um, Well, every testimony we hear is different. Some are subtle, some are not so subtle. Today we're looking at one that's not so subtle. So we're going to kind of break it down and just kind of go through here verse by verse and unpack these things and um, just see what God's word is teaching us. Verses 1 and 2. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Right at the beginning, something that sticks out to me is still breathing threats of murder. When we think of breathing, we, we breathe oxygen. It becomes our very life. It keeps us alive. We breathe in the air that keeps us alive. He is breathing in threats and murder. This mission to persecute Christians, this mission to seek out Christians and have them arrested, have them killed such as Stephen, it became his very breath. It became his very life. It became the thing driving him, similar to a war horse when they smell war out in the battlefield and and they're reared up and ready for battle. This is what we see with Saul of Tarsus at this point. So he goes to the Sanhedrin, he goes to them and he says to the chief priest, he says, look, give me permission to travel to to Damascus to go and stop this movement. This heretic movement is moving up to, to Damascus, give me papers so that I can go there and I find anybody preaching Jesus, anybody involved in this Christian movement, I can arrest them, I can bind them, and I can drag them back here. And so it got me asking, like, why Damascus? Um, what I found when I was studying this, Damascus is 160 miles from where he was at in Jerusalem. 160 miles, it's a long way. For us, it's a trip from here to Salt Lake. And if you're like me at all, the drive up there isn't bad. But after you've spent a whole day doing what you got to do, that two-hour drive back kind of sucks. Like you want to sit on the couch, you just want to get back and kick your feet up, but you still have that two hours in the car before you get home. Saul, on his mission, he didn't have, he didn't have the, the luxury of a car or any type of vehicle, 
they're in the hot desert, in the hot sun, and they're traveling 160 miles. Days and days worth of journey. Um, probably walking. If luck was a little more on his side, maybe riding a donkey. And if things were really in place, they, they had some horses to travel. So why was he willing to step up and ask for permission to travel 160 miles to Damascus? You see, Damascus had a large following of a large Jewish following already. There was a large Jewish presence in Damascus. And what I found when I was studying for it is there, there's a point mentioned where at one point 10,000 Jews were killed in Damascus. And they were still thriving in that area. There was something like over 20 synagogues in the area of Damascus. So why was Saul wanting to go there? Because of his Jewish upbringing and his heart for what he was trying to protect. He wanted to get there and keep Judaism in, in Damascus purified. He didn't want it defiled with the heretic movement of Christianity. He wanted to keep Judaism purified. So he set out on a mission. Verses 3 through 5. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. A couple things that stand out into this. Um, a bright light from heaven shone around him. And this isn't just a bright light. If we take a look at like what it says uh, in some later verses, this is a light that was brighter than the sun. Can you pull up the Acts 26 one towards the bottom? And at midday, O king, and this is Saul talking to King Agrippa later on when he is he's, um, on trial. He says, at midday, O king, I saw the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. So they're in the desert in the, in the dead of the day. It says, at midday. The sun is directly overhead at midday. It's hot. It's overbearing. It's probably the most powerful thing out there, the sun. And all of a sudden, it becomes not so powerful. All of a sudden, it becomes a side note. That shows the majesty and the power of God. The sun became secondary. A light from heaven shined down so bright that those that are around him could see nothing. He fell to the ground. And he heard the voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And... I think the answer hit Saul in so many ways. This, this myth that he was chasing around, this myth he was trying to debunk, all of a sudden is there with the light that's brighter than the sun saying, I am Jesus. Now, I did some further studying, and, and it led me to believe that I, I think the light shining from heaven was because the people traveling with him, they weren't meant to see Jesus at that time. They weren't meant to see his face. But I don't think Saul saw just the light. I think Saul saw Jesus. And I'll show you why I think this. Um, further down in our Acts chapter 9, on verse 17, he, Saul himself says, So Ananias departed 
and entered the house. Or no, this is Ananias talking to him. He says, Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me. Who appeared to you. There's another verse I'm going to pull up that shows this as well. Can you pull up the 1 Corinthians, please? This is Saul. He, uh, this is the Apostle Paul. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some has fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So I don't think Saul saw just this bright light from heaven. I think in his mission to go and arrest Christians and persecute Jesus, he was looking face to face with the one that he was trying to defuse or debunk. It's an encounter that we'll see here through these next verses that are going to change him in many ways. If we look at verses 6 through 9, we'll go through next. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So, he, so they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and no one ate or drank. We read in this verse that it happened suddenly. Moments after this sudden, hap sudden appearance happened to him, moments after this, he's given instruction. So it goes from him on a mission, ready to go and persecute any Christians following Jesus, to in the snap of a finger, receiving instruction from Jesus. And if we know about Paul's personality, his zeal, he has, um, there's some verses where he talked about zeal was what he was chasing, and it, it was not doing him right. If we think about his zeal and his attitude, we don't imagine that he's going to receive instruction well. But that's not what we see here. Just like I mentioned, everyone's conversion is different. Some of us are brought up in the church. We heard Jen's testimony, kind of, where she was brought up um, in the church, and we hear other people's stories where they're raised in a Christian household, and they develop a relationship with Christ over time. Similar to the apostles, they traveled with Jesus for, for years, and they developed that relationship with him. Not Saul. One minute he is heading to arrest, the next minute he is arrested. He is arrested by the presence of Jesus right there in front of him. It was similar to what I went through. I, I was leading a life of sin and misery. Found myself laying in a little locked room with concrete all around me and a steel door. And at that moment, I was knocked to the ground and I asked God to come into my life. And things have never been the same since. And Saul is the same thing. 
And similar to my story, um, I had heard Jesus saves. I had heard that Jesus is the Messiah. I had heard these things, but at that point they had not affected me. Saul has heard of the teachings of Jesus going through Jerusalem. He stood there in person and heard the testimony of Stephen that Nick shared with us. He heard Stephen walk them all the way through the Old Testament, all the way to the point of the coming Messiah, and it didn't speak to him. Sometimes God speaks to us in ways and we don't listen. Sometimes some of us are like Saul the Tarsus. We need to be knocked down. We need to be knocked down for that to affect us. And like me, hearing the slamming of a metal door behind me and my freedom taking, that was the way I was knocked down. Some of us are knocked down with a doctor delivering a biopsy report. And that report is, it's terminal. Some of us are knocked down by that phone call that we get that a tragic accident has happened and we just lost a loved one. We're all knocked down in different ways and we all have different conversion stories. It says in there that for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. And um, this is just my belief. My belief is, is there's two things at play here. In this three-day period where he neither ate nor drank nor saw nothing, I think there's two things at play. One, I think he's in shock. Everything that he has ever been taught from the time he was a little kid, everything that he had ever believed deep into his heart has just been challenged to the very core. Similar to being knocked down by the death of a loved one, that type of news, that type of um, encounter can put you in shock. If you think, if you've experienced it and you've lost a loved one or something, you know it makes you sick. The last thing that you think about, the last thing that you want to do is eat or drink. And it's weird because all your neighbors are, are trying to be helpful and all your friends and family and they're bringing you all these casseroles and all these things to eat. But when it's fresh and you're in shock, it's the last thing you want to do. I believe he was in shock. I believe he didn't have any hunger or thirst for anything because he was going through shock. And second, he saw nothing for three days. And I think that it's so easily to be influenced by outside things that God wanted him to spend some time introspectively looking at what this relationship with Jesus would look like. So he could see nothing. He didn't have any outside influences from guards or the other people that were um, at the place. He, he didn't have no outside influence from anything that was going on at Damascus. He didn't catch uh, a glimpse at any of the synagogues that would draw him away from Christ and back towards Judaism, which was his prior beliefs. He was blind. That three-day period of not eating not drinking, and not seeing, I believe is probably the second most important three-day period in our history. The first, of course, being the three days after Jesus was crucified until his resurrection. And this one being the three days that Saul was without sight, food, or drink. Because he, he came to, once, he's, once we move further in the story, he comes through a different man. And he becomes the 
chief proponent trying to stop Christianity, or the chief opponent trying to stop Christianity and becomes the chief proponent for promoting Christianity to the ends of the earth. Let's look at verses 10 through 19. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. I can picture him being there, going about his day. And the Lord says, Ananias. And when you're a servant of God Almighty... And he calls to you audibly. I bet, man, I bet he felt so good in that moment. When you're called by God in, in, a, in an audible call, Ananias. Right? He's like, here I am, Lord. Here I am. And then he goes on, he says, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. So I bet it went from like, here I am, Lord, to... Wait, hold up. What did you just say? Go where? Find who? Let's look at his response. It says, he has, seen a, he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come and lay hands on him so that he may regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man and the evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here, he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight. Excuse me, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. So he's there. He's ready to humbly serve Lord, and he gets the instruction. The only instruction that he probably would have brought fear after hearing. Probably the only instruction that would have rattled him to actually say, God, are you sure? It, it, it makes me think, it makes me think like nowadays in our society, things are so ugly at times that you wake up one morning you wake up one morning and you turn on the news and another tragedy has happened. A school shooting, let's say, has happened. And after those things happen, it's like, man, this is really happening in our world right now. And then the next move you got to do is get up and get your kid ready for school. It makes you sick. It worries. It's like, gosh, man, am I going to do this? I'm thinking of Ananias in this light because, one, we know that word about what's going on in the area is traveling pretty fast because he's, Saul was on his way, was arrested by Jesus, was, and is at this house, and 
when Jesus tells Ananias, go to this house, Ananias already knows that he had received letters and was on his way to go arrest Christians. So the word is gathering, uh, traveling the area, and they know what's going on. So I'm sure he heard a story that Nick told us about. I'm sure he heard a story of Stephen that was professing his faith in Christ. I'm sure he heard the story where he gave his message to the people and spoke of the coming Messiah. I'm sure he heard the story that the people were so enraged that they covered their ears and they started screaming, no, 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 and they drug him out into the city. They tied him to a tree and they stoned him. Now, it's easy for us in our day and age to read, he was stoned to death, and just read. But picture it. Picture a man doing nothing other than loving Jesus and wanting to share that with people. Picture him drug out against his will and tied to a tree. Picture a mob of people gathered around picking up stones from the ground. It doesn't say he was pebbled to death. It's not like they were grazing gravel. He was stoned to death. They were picking up rocks, some sharp, some dull, some larger than others, and they were throwing them at him. And if any of you guys have played some sports, you've been hit by a baseball, or you've been, you've been hit with things, you know it hurts. If it happens once, maybe twice, but you're still alive. You're still breathing. So it's not like he was hit with one stone or ten stones. He was repeatedly pelted with stone after stone after stone after stone until finally that last stone that was thrown took his life. Ananias... Ananias heard this story. He heard the story that after he died, all of those people that were chucking those rocks took their cloaks and laid them at the feet of a man named Saul from Tarsus. He's just been given instruction. Go to the house, for behold, you're going to find him praying. Which, it's not that big of a deal to think that we're finding Saul of Tarsus praying. He's brought up in Jewish tradition. He's taught Jewish prayers that you say at certain times of day on certain events, and he's praying. That's not a surprise. I think the surprise was when he got there, the type of prayer he was praying. I don't think it was one of these formal Jewish ritualistic prayers. He'd been encountered by Jesus Christ. He'd had his heart of stone taken out and replaced with the heart of flesh. I think it was walking in, and hearing the type of prayer that Saul was probably praying that helped him have the confidence to continue to do what God had asked him to do. And so he goes up to him, brother Saul. And I don't think it was confident at that point. Knowing this guy's history, knowing this guy's background, knowing what he's been doing, I'm sure it was like, Br brother, brother Saul. And I think it was the Holy Spirit at that point that gave him the confidence. The Lord Jesus Christ, who you encountered on the road, has sent me to pray for you that you might receive your sight. Saul regained his sight. 
Saul regained his sight with a new vision. Not a vision to persecute Christians, but a vision to pursue Christianity. A vision that led him to be responsible for more than two-thirds of the New Testament and share the gospel from country to country to plant church and plant church after church. It happened immediately. Saul was encountered by Jesus. He was knocked down and he was changed. He immediately got up, ate, said, baptize me. This, that right there shows how closely he was following the teachings of Christ, how closely he was keeping track of what they were teaching and understanding it. He was a smart man. And so he, right after this encounter, woke up and was baptized. And immediately he started proclaiming the gospel to people. Now, I know for us, sharing the gospel can be scary, but it's also important. I guarantee nothing we face is going to be as scary as walking in to a guy that was murdering Christians and grabbing him by the shoulder and giving him direction. I know Ananias, filled with the Holy Spirit, is filled with the same Holy Spirit that we have living in each and every one of us today. So I know that it's going to be scary at times, and I know it's going to take us into places where we're uncomfortable and probably don't want to be, whether it's um, at the jail sharing the gospel with someone, a homeless shelter, uh, a drug rehab, somewhere that's out of our element. It's going to be nerve-wracking. But you never know who that person is and how they're going to affect God's kingdom, how many people they're going to share with, how many people they're going to impact and help to know Christ. And that's a big deal because it's an eternal deal. The people that may not get the chance to know him, we know where they spend eternity. The people that that person that you share with and they share with and it just spreads out from there, we know they're going to be by God in heaven for eternity. Remember I talked, I, I began this talk um, talking about intentions and sincerity. I think if you were to ask the Apostle Paul, hey, when you were out there and you were persecuting Christians, did you have good intentions? Were you sincere in what you were doing? And he would look at you and he would say, yes, I was sincere. At that point, I was sincerely trying to keep Judaism pure. I was trying to keep it from becoming defiled, from becoming contaminated. What is the healthiest place in the world to live? I studied that. I looked it up. The healthiest place on the planet Earth that one could live is the South Pole. The South Pole is so cold that no bacteria or germs can survive in that environment. It's so cold and all the winds originate from there. So any contaminants and things that are there are blown away into the surrounding areas. 
The South Pole is the healthiest place on the planet that you could live. But I bet you don't see a lot of people lined up getting ready to move to the South Pole. I actually looked, and um, real estate's pretty dang cheap down there. <laughs> There's not a big movement of people getting ready to move to the South Pole because it's the healthiest place to live. Why? Because it's so dang cold down there, right? Similar to Saul. He was trying to keep Judaism purified. He was trying so intently to keep it purified, but he was doing it in such a cold, calculating way that it was actually driving people away from God instead of drawing them in. You see it sometimes with um, other religions such as um, Islam. Some, some of the stories that I was reading online when I was looking through this is once they realized that they were actually killing innocent people to try and draw them towards Muhammad, they realized that that was cold and they didn't want to be a part of it. And that coldness drove them away from that and drew them into Christ. The fact of the matter is, guys, no matter how good our intentions are, no matter how sincere we are with what we're doing, if we're not doing it with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can be doing more harm than we are good. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you want people to receive the gift of eternal life, there's only one way to tell them about it, and it's in truth with love. In just a minute, we're going to take communion, and um, we'll pray at that point after we take communion. So can we get our...